Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Michael Omardian. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, a podcast devoted to musicians, fans, and the people that make music happen. I'm Rick Such. And I'm Eddie Cabello. Welcome, everybody, from around the world. And as Rick mentioned, Inside Music Cast is devoted to bringing you candid interviews, news, and information with the musicians, fans, and people that make music happen. That's right. This is the podcast that goes beyond the pop star and features the talent behind the talent. So if you're ready, let's get started. A perennial classic producer and session musician, our guest really needs no introduction. He is the first producer in recording history to have number one records in three separate decades, the 70s, 80s, and 90s. In 1980, he was nominated for 10 Grammy Awards, three of which he won for his work on Christopher Cross's debut album, Sailing. In the 80s, he was nominated twice for Producer of the Year. In 1991, he was nominated for Album of the Year for Amy Grant's Heart in Motion. And in 1994, he even produced the soundtrack album for the Summer Olympic Games. He's still in demand as a producer, but is now spending more time discovering new talent. Over his lengthy and successful career, he's worked with names such as Bela Fleck, Rod Stewart, Steely Dan, Michael Bolton, Whitney Houston, Willie Nelson, Reba McIntyre, Roberta Flack, Alison Krauss, and a recent Inside Music Cast guest, David Pack. Inside Music Cast welcomes a true classic, Michael Lomardian. Michael, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. My yeah. pleasure. Um, you know, I want to start off with a question. Uh, you know how they say the old adage, you're as young as you feel. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, you've had such a strong influence in the music industry for years. You're the only producer that's uh, recorded, you know, in recording history to have three number ones in three decades. Everybody yeah. knows that. The Grammys, countless. You're discovering new talent. You're busy. The question is, how do you stay musically young over these years? I mean, that's a relevant question for sort of a veteran producer like uh, for you. Well, you know, uh, the, the thing to me is, is that I've I've made made up my mind a long time ago that I would not try to get stuck in one type of thing, mm-hmm. and, and as a result, I've been able to produce everything from R and B to rock and and the jazz and classical and stuff. And so, yeah. as a result, I think what it does is it's is it that it's not so much that you're listening to everything that's out there, it's just that you're open to not having to do the same thing over and over and over again. Right. And that's been very helpful to me. Uh, and it's because, I, I honestly, it has to do with personal taste. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never gotten locked into one thing. It's just it's more of a reflection of where I'm at personally anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I just enjoy all kinds of stuff. Right. Well, I've always considered you to be, um, you know, in looking at the history of your work, you know, a, a, a classic producer. And, oh. and the work that you've done over the years, you know, seems to have such a, I can just say longevity or timelessness to it, and uh, like for instance, I mean you know, the, the early work, you know, with Steely Dan and Christopher Cross, you know, it's still relevant music today. You follow me? Well, hopefully, that's what you're trying to achieve. You know, yeah. you, at the time when you're doing it, you're kind of excited about it at, at, for what it is, and you don't really think in terms of well, what's going to happen twenty or thirty years down the road because everybody's busy and you move from one thing to another. But it really is. Exciting to realize that you know when someone says, "Hey, who are you?" and I mention my name, they go, "Oh yeah, you're the guy that played on Steely Dan's records and stuff." And it's yeah. a young kid or a college kid. It, it, it's really kind of cool. Well, it's sort of interesting. Don't you find it really interesting that the old, uh, how should I say, the classic rock stuff, Steely Dan, uh, and so it is just alive, and it's almost like, "Holy cow!" My kids are actually listening to this. My my daughter right. was, uh, you know, she's in junior high. She's so into the in, into the Beatles cuts right now, and you know, yeah. she's seeing Eleanor Rigby and stuff. You know? Well, I'll tell you, there. I think there's a phenomenon going on, and, and I have a couple of nephews that are, you know, young teenagers, and mm-hmm. it's interesting. I'm finding that they're less satisfied with what's going on musically at the moment, and they need more uh, of a stretch, and so they do get into the Beatles and some of the Earth, Wind, and Fire, some of the older uh, records, and, and I think maybe uh, that was because the music is, I don't know, it's, it's cut with live people. You know, a lot of the music today is... Mm-hmm. Very computer generated, and I think that that's wonderful. But it just doesn't seem to have the lasting thing. Now, of course, thirty years from now, uh, we we don't know what's going to happen. But yeah. from the from the standpoint of what's going on right now, I notice that a lot of people are into older music. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, on the on that note, I was going to say, you know, a lot of the young kids are really used to they're listening to the classics, but as samples. Right. 
You know, so they think that groove is a is a brand new groove. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. They don't realize that that thing was 30 or 40 years old. And <laughs> it's been combined into something that's contemporary. But in a way, that keeps it alive, which is kind of cool. Yeah, too, really. So. Hey, hey, Michael, you, you know, you've done some amazing session work. You, you know, you've produced great projects. You've, you've written countless wonderful songs. And, you know, of those disciplines, which one do you embrace the most, you know, between writing, producing, performing? I think the most gratifying uh, part of the process for me is to end up writing with an artist or something mm-hmm. like that and then, and then seeing that through to the end. But it, to me, it's always about the initial creation. That's why I think as artists, it's it's got to be very fun to be writing and then see the thing just kind of expand and become what what hopefully the artist wanted and what everybody wanted. But I, I think that that's the, the, the production part of it is, is pretty much a... It's more of an organizational, it's, you know, the production is fun, but there are so many aspects to it that, that aren't really music-oriented or mm-hmm. driven. They're more pragmatic issues, budgets, and all that kind of stuff that you have to keep, you know, talking to lawyers, talking to different people. It's got to be the creative part of it. It's just got to be the playing. It's got to be the writing. Right. Well, this might be a, a maybe. Let's go a little deeper on on, on that thought. Uh, um, you know, there must be a handful of projects that that you were you've been involved with over the years that that are your personal. Let's just say, uh, I, I mean, with due respect to all the the current work that you're doing, but your trophies. I mean, the ones that Michael Omardian can sit back and say, "Oh yeah, this this is this is a good one." The ones that are personal gratification. You follow me? I, I'll tell you, I it's I'm kind of a funny dude in in the respect that I just really. Don't dwell in past things. I'm always moving forward, but mm-hmm. I, I have to think of of not just music, but relationships. I, I think that what's cultivated with uh, with getting along with people, people that are still my friends, uh, those are the moments to me that not only musically are charged and, and great. It's the friendships that have endured, and and people like Amy Grant, Vince Gill, some of these people, uh, Christopher Cross, who I, I talk to all the time, and uh, you know uh, those. Those projects were fun, not just because of the music, but they were fun because of the people that I was involved with. Mm-hmm. And, and the, these people seemed to have the right amount of obsession about what they were doing and the right amount of looking outside of themselves and going, you know what, it's not just this, it's it's a whole lot more. But, you know, as a player, I, I'll be real honest with you, I think a lot of us guys that, that played on the Steely Dan stuff weren't really having a great time when we were doing it because it was really tough. But yeah. But in retrospect, it was fun. Uh, the, the, they were tough to deal with, uh, and I think they would even tell you that if you if you uh, talk to them now, they'd say that it was a, a particularly weird period of time for them <laughs> because they were going through their own personal deals. But you know, I think uh, I really love the, the Rod Stewart record I did with Rod. We came up with a couple of really good things that I look back on. Some guys have all the luck and infatuation, which yeah. were big records, and right. I enjoyed doing that because it really kind of took me out of a a certain thing. They were more rocked out and a little more contemporary. So yeah. I, I can't. I can't go back and go, that was it, because there have just been too many moments as a player, as a producer, as an arranger. It, but, you know, it's the people that I still talk to and the people that I still have a relationship with. Those those are the ones that really endure. Mm-hmm. And I think that that probably, I mean, if if I were to ever say to someone who's who's coming up behind me uh, uh, and, and their minds are so completely embrace only final result, uh, this thing has to be successful and, and not be able to enjoy what happens between the beginning and the end yeah. and can only be happy if it's successful. I just think that's that you're, you're headed for the wrong direction. I just think you've got to cultivate an appreciation for every moment of this because a lot of people aren't afforded an opportunity to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. It's true. I don't know if that answers your question, but oh, sure. it just went, I just went there. So yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that perfect. Topic, so. Hey, Michael, I'm a, I've been working in a, I, I own my own studio and I've been an engineer for 15 years. And, right. and uh, you know, I'd like to just hear from your perspective, you know, what part the engineer plays when, when you're producing. I have a guy, I've had two engineers in my life. There's a guy named John Guess and a guy named Terry Christian. And these two guys I've been loyal to and they've been loyal to me. I've been with Terry uh, for about 20, a little over 21 years or 22 years. And Terry was working with Prince at Sunset Sound and uh, he ended up just filling in for a guy that was sick that uh, wasn't able to, John wasn't able to show up. and, And John was going through, he was moving to Nashville. And uh, I was going to lose him in L.A., and he came here to Nashville, and so I needed to find somebody. And Terry kind of stepped in, and, and uh, it's been 
T and I have been working ever since. And uh, so uh, for me, an engineer is, you know, there, there's, uh, there are people, my son is, is really talented. He's a talented musician. He's a talented producer. He's a talented engineer. I just, the, the engineering part of it is just not interesting enough to me hmm. to really get into it myself. So I'm always really dependent on mm-hmm. an engineer. We've got a whole Pro Tool system. You know, we went from tape to Pro Tools and Terry's just gotten so into it and and I look at it, and I just go, man, just leave me to create here. I, I can't deal with this, you know. So yeah. uh, an engineer is a very important part of what I do. Well, it's, it's certainly an art in itself. You totally. Know? Yeah. In fact, Terry was up for Grammy this year. He was out in L.A. and, oh, and cool. uh, for uh, work he did on an Alan Jackson record. So Did he win? No, they, oh. he didn't win. It was in the Best Engineered Album, and I forgot who won. someone else won in the, that category. But he was, he was a nominee, so that was exciting. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. Well, speaking of uh, a couple things that you just mentioned of uh, Grammys, uh, a recent guest that we had, uh, Greg Fillingaines, you yeah. know Greg, uh, who's now with uh, with Toto. Yeah. Um, you know, you've worked with him in the past several occasions, oh, yeah. but but during uh, our interview, he mentioned uh, something that that really made us uh, really crack up a little bit. But you know, it it sort of jives with what you're saying about the Steely Dan uh, yeah. era that it was sort of, sort of a weird time, you know. Yeah. And uh, he, he mentioned this one. Uh, the, the session actually, and he, and your name came up, and uh, it was uh, working on uh, with Donald Fagan on the Nightfly. Yes, and do you remember that session? Oh yeah, where I played the uh, I forgot if I played the I played part of it and he played another part. Of yeah, it. <laughs> he mentioned to us that oh. you know Donald wanted uh, to try something, so he put you on the left side of the stool, right? And Greg was on the right. That's right, <laughs> you guys. Oh yeah, started playing. What the heck was that about? <laughs> it was kind of typical. I mean, it, the, I remember with the night because because you know other things too. I remember <laughs> it was so funny. There's a couple <laughs> of, of funny stories with Greg, but that that one was really unusual. I mean, you know, it's kind of like. <laughs> How do you do that? I mean, it's so bizarre because, you know, your pedal work, everything has to go with everything. And it was, you know, it's like I said, you know, it's fun, but it's so tough and it's frustrating because you want it to work and sometimes it doesn't work. In this case, I did play part of it and Greg played part of it, too. And I don't remember if it was just me playing the left hand or the right hand. That might have been something we tried. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, On the actual song, The Nightfly, I remember when I came into the studio and, and he just had me play to a click. Uh, and he only wanted the left hand so he could have perfect uh, isolation between the left hand and the right hand. And so I had to, I worked for about nine hours <laughs> trying to orchestrate a piano track that sounded like you're playing at the same time. It was Holy so frustrating. Cow. It was ridiculous. Wow. But, uh, and they kept it. I mean, they kept that track. So, well, apparently but, he says that the, the double hand uh, track, apparently they made it to the album too. Yeah, absolutely. Jeez. Absolutely. And the other thing with Greg, which was so funny, is because, you know, a lot of times, Keyboard players, in the early 70s, it wasn't atypical to have a couple of keyboard players show up for a session. Someone playing Hammond or, or Rhodes, someone playing uh, acoustic piano. Right. And so it was kind of unusual later on. And I remember one of, the, uh, one of the sessions where I walked into the studio. Quincy Jones had called for a piano overdub thing, and he called me, said, come on over. And, and there were four of us. Walk in the studio, Phil and Gaines was there and a couple other guys, and we, I said, to him, hey, man, what you doing? I'm here to do some piano overdubs. And the other guy says, I'm here to do some piano And we just started laughing. <laughs> All of you guys were there to do All the same them. thing. <laughs> and, and Quincy would say, Quincy would say, Greg, come on in. And he'd work for about an hour, and he said, Omar, get in here. And then I, I, I'm trying to remember who the other two guys were, but it was pretty funny, you know. And that, that was an unusual day, too. So, That's funny. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Steely Dan, and, and how did you hook up with those guys back in the, in the 70s? Well, they were an ABC Dunhill artist, mm-hmm. and Steve Barry was, you know, obviously in the office, and, and De- Gary Katz was at ABC as a producer, and mm-hmm. Gary heard some of the stuff I did on other records, and he told the guys, he says, you ought to use this guy. They heard what I did, and, and that's how I got hired. Simple as that, huh? Simple as that. Cool. And, and you played on uh, most of their albums throughout the 70s, that's correct? That's logic. Uh, Katie lied. Asia. After Asia, they went to to on the Gaucho. They went to more of a guitar based thing, and and right. uh, then the Nightfly, which was uh, Donald Fagan's. And then ever since they went moved back to New York, they've kind of used their own guys from New York. Right. Cool. And your experience working with those guys uh, enjoyable or was it tough? I wouldn't say it was enjoyable. I mean, it was they, they were fairly sarcastic. I mean, they appreciated what we did, but there was never it wasn't really chummy, and and nobody felt real close to them. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't that kind of a thing at all. It was kind of their world. and It was their world, and, you know, they were they were nice guys. I mean, they but they weren't the kind of guys that you go, he's my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
It was a gig. We talked about a second ago with recording engineers and, and how technology has changed, you know, how yeah. we're recording with Pro Tools and all. But, you know, you know, technology has also influenced the actual creation of the music, you know. And when synths first appeared, you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s or so, how deep did you embrace the new electronics? Yeah. And, you know, you actually played on several projects as a session player on synths only. Yeah, in fact, I was dragged before the union uh, and was threatened with a $10,000 fine for emulating other instruments and taking work away from other people. Are you serious? Oh, my gosh. Well, that was the early days because because people in those days thought, well, if it's a synthesizer, all you're trying to do is, is make it sound like strings or, or make it sound like some other instrument that already existed. And the concept of it having its own indigenous uh, contribution or sounds was these people didn't realize that a synthesizer can make its own sounds. Right. So I, I was, yeah, I was dragged before that. I had to sit there and I had to actually bring in synthesizers and explain to them how uh, a mini moog does not sound like a violin. Right. Right. Holy and God. and yeah, so I mean, I was. It was really kind of interesting because it was the early days of of bringing that stuff into sessions, and and uh, it was a real threat to a lot of people. And you know now. You have everything sampled, so now you're talking about putting people out of work. Now mm-hmm. you're talking about putting people out of work. Right, right, right. So, holy cow! So you know, so you had to bring in the. Oh, I had to bring the in keyboards, I had, I had the whole a, setup. A, an ARP twenty six hundred. I had a mini Moog. I think I had a Prophet five. I had a few things, and I had to go in there and I and I had to literally sit there and kind of do a three hour tutorial oh with the president and all the different people sitting there because it was they were going to levy a fine against me because they saw my name on a record. And it said synthesizers, and they were convinced that what was going on in the music world was taking work away from other people. Holy cow. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. And, you know, I got to tell you, you you talk about the technology. It's it's interesting because one of the beauties of uh, 30 years ago was the amount of tracks that you had and what you had available and how creative you had to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, Terry just received a, 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 a hard drive for a mix that he was supposed to do, and there were 200 and some tracks of information, <laughs> and the guy decided, well, I'll put a cowbell on this track, but you know, when he went to, the, to do it in another place, he put it on another track. Oh so back in those days, you had 24 tracks, sometimes 16 tracks to work with, and you had to be very creative. And so uh, you made commitments. You had to make commitments on what was going to go down, and you had to kind of decide prior to mixing what this record really was going to sound like. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and, uh, and that was kind of cool because it was a discipline in, in my mind that forced you to have to craft something and, and realize that that's it. You, you don't have 20 or 30 different options at this. You know, it's not like, well, we can bring this in for this mix or this, and we have 200 and some tracks to work with. You had a few tracks. I mean, you could, you could bounce tracks, but of course you'd lose generations of sounds sure, so you had to be right. careful how you bounce tracks from one another to be able to, to to make room for more things so you had to really pre-plan you don't have to pre-plan anymore there you was a, just kind of go there was a method to to your recording well it was a method to everybody so i mean you were it was it was the limitations that made in my mind beautiful records because of, of the decision making that had to be done mm-hmm. up front right that's really interesting um you know there, there's one um Speaking of synths, you know, I, I'm I'm a keyboard player from a long, long time, right. but um, but there was one album and and that led me to the purchase of my first synth. It was an it was an Oberheim, it was an OBX. Oh yeah, years ago, and the album was you played on it. It was called it was uh, Algero. Yeah, it, it was titles Algero. This is the one with uh, yeah, we're in this uh, club together. Exactly, Jay Graydon. You yeah. you actually shared keyboards with uh, Matheson, Candy yeah. Foster on that, yeah. Yeah. and some of the string patches that you uh, you played on that that was really cool. That, yeah, that 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 project right there was sort of you know life changing for me. You That's know? cool. That was a really cool one. That record was cut between ten o'clock in the evening till about seven in the morning. Seriously? Wow. Yeah, because uh, Jay was nocturnal. The, the uh, he, <laughs> he refused to work during the day. Yeah, we're trying to get him to. to well, you're gonna have to do it at about two in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Which I would be glad to do. You're gonna have to get him at yeah. about two or three in the morning. She was on Unless he's changed, I don't know. <laughs> that was but, nighttime. Was his day. Man. <laughs> that was one of the nicest of uh, Juro project. But you also did. You actually wrote to Boogie Down with yeah. uh, with Al's, right? Yeah. You, you worked with him for a while. Yeah, and uh, which he's was, a good guy. Yeah. Well, talking about synth, you know, and, and talking about the the early days, seventies and eighties, you know, the, a lot of those seventies sounds seem to really be back no yeah, doubt, in no some doubt. form or another, like yep. the Mellotron and those two yep. bass synths. They're, they're hot. And do you own any vintage synths that you you know still use in, in tracks? No, I. 
I, I don't. No, okay. I don't have any vintage synths, but I do have, uh, you know, some samples of all the vintage synth stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many, the VST instruments and all kinds right. of stuff that's available, you know. I do have a B3, you know, with the Leslie, and, and uh, I have a couple of, you know, I, it's just so much stuff is in software-based now that I, I just use that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But it does have a comprehensive Oberheim file and uh, just all these different instruments that you, if you want to do it. I'm finding that since I've moved to Nashville, I've I've really kind of spent a whole lot of time in much more of a live domain than mm -hmm. it was when I was leaving L.A., where everything was basically generated from MIDI, and then you'd add one instrument at a time. We're doing a lot of stuff all at the same time. Explain that a little bit. What do you mean by, I mean, what's what the difference well, back here? Well, uh, back in the 90s, when, when MIDI, well, when, when uh, music was starting to become broken down to someone's, like in, a, in the case of a programmer, it would be your brainchild, and you'd kind of map things out and right. map the song out with using drum machines and yeah. fake bass stuff and, and a lot of keys. And then if you needed to expand, you'd start ripping stuff out of that and start replacing it with a real guitar, mm -hmm. right. real sure. drums. But the thing is, is that all the ideas were pre-generated. You weren't really calling on musicians to come together to mm -hmm. give you their ideas. You were basically imprinting everything that you thought and just had them put real instruments on what, what was already existing. So it, I got kind of tired of hearing myself and hearing my ideas, and I just figured I've got to get away from this. And, and I think that it's so funny. It's kind of like the frog in, in cold water being boiled to death. You don't realize, he doesn't realize he's being boiled to death. After a while, you really believe what you're doing is so hip, and then you bring in a musician... And they put something on that you didn't think about, and you go, that's what's hip. Mm -hmm. Not just what's coming out of my head exclusively. So I think I had to get away from everything kind of being my brainchild. In fact, you know, and I'm, and I'm not trying to be critical of, of what's going on today, but, but everything is so simplistic right. and so not explored. You know, a lot of these tracks are a simple drum machine, a two-bar vocal mantra, a couple of chords, and that's the song. And and not that I'm against that, but I, I just feel like that that something that should be the exception to the rule is becoming the rule. Yeah. And I and I, I it saddens me. And and people keep saying, well, it's because education is out of the music education has gone out of the out of the schools. Mm -hmm, and I mm -hmm. think that's a total cop out because I think people who want to be musicians don't need the education system that we have to become musicians. They can, you can do it. I didn't use the education system. I took private lessons. I did stuff on my own. If you mm -hmm. really got it, the thing is, is that I believe that what we're listening to or what we're being exposed to is just not really well-rounded. What I you're talking about really is, is craft, knowing your craft well, and knowing I mean, what you, you know, do. I, I, I think I like some of the Eminem stuff a lot. I think, I think he's really creative. I think there's mm -hmm. some things that are out there. But the thing is, is that, well, just to give you an example, I was on a plane about seven or eight years ago, and I'm, and I'm, I'm just listening to something, and I don't know what it was. Some guy sits next to me, and he yeah. hits me on the arm and says, Hey, man, are you a musician? I said, Yeah. And he said, uh, What do you play? And I said, Well, I play piano. I play, I'm a drummer. I said, What do you play? He says, I play drum machine. <laughs> and I mean, he looked at me, and, and in his mind, he was on the same level as I was because he played a drum machine, and I played <laughs> piano. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is what's going on. Is It's just that, you know, the fact that you can bring up a beat... Yeah. And combine it with another beat and and have a two chord thing doesn't you're just not in the same league. I'm really sorry. I mean, <laughs> if it's offensive, I can't help it. I started when I was four years old. I'm 61. I've been playing piano. All you know, the, the bottom line is you keep getting better at what you do, right. bringing up sound 07 on a such and such a synthesizer and bringing up beat. 250 on your soft sense doesn't make you a better musician. Right, I play right. drum machine. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. And, you know, I don't have to tell you that, really, there are so many great musicians and artists out there that don't look a certain way that can run circles around the stuff that's out here, but mm -hmm. they don't get a shot because we're in a very visual yeah. uh, video age. Mm -hmm. And celebrity, in fact, they, they interviewed a bunch of people, and they asked, what is your number one uh, goal and they said it's celebrity. It wasn't to be a great musician. Yeah. I want to be a celebrity. Right. So I mean, it's just it's kind of gone off the rails, and, and I don't know what to do about it. I mean, I think we. Well, it's it's tough because you know to, to the general public, the people buying music yeah. now, they don't care how it was created, and, and that's the sad part. Well, to me. I agree with you, I, but I do think that when I when I see all these kids who are 
right in the middle of culture, pop culture as it is today, and they say, hey, man, I've just gotten into Hendrix, or I've gotten into Joni Mitchell, or I've gotten mm-hmm. into stuff, you go, okay, these kids know something, too. They've sure, reached their sure. end of what they can take of this stuff, too. And mm-hmm. the thing is, is that I'm looking for someone today, and I'm not sure that it's even possible, because because uh, artist development doesn't exist anymore. I mean, that's a whole other yeah. aspect of, when I was a producer, I was part of an A&R department at Warner Brothers, that the whole department was about artist development. You wouldn't think in terms of if your first record doesn't work or is kicking you off the label. They had seven album deals. You'd develop and you'd work and work Mm -hmm. and see what you had over a long period of time. Today, it's basically, show me what you got now, baby. (laughs) Show me what you got. (laughs) (laughs) And and if it ain't right right now, then I'm not interested. There's just no development. And it goes back to what you said, said a second ago. Artist development nowadays is more visual. Exactly. You know, it's how you look. Exactly. I mean, when you think about everybody, when you think about the people that are being talked about, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm straining to find the musical excellence in it. It's, it's mm-hmm. hard. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't. I mean, there's people out there, people out there. out there, you know, even at the Grammy Awards, there's obviously people who can sing and people who can do what they do. Sure. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about it. But I mean, I come from a time where I knew every single artist out there uh, because it was all on one chart. Mm-hmm. And uh, you you had a real sense of what everybody was doing. I think part of the fact that we have thousands of artists uh, out all vying for the same space mm-hmm. makes people really bored very quickly. Yeah. And so a person doesn't have a, have a, a long career to really develop anything. And so what it, what happens is, is that you have to do bells and whistles to get someone's attention. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like slamming a door or something like that instead of just, you know, like a peaceful sound has to be something jarring mm-hmm. to wake you up and then you get tired of it and you move on. Yeah. So, yeah. You're, you're a Midwesterner. You grew up in Illinois. Yep. And uh, you started off uh, really playing a lot of your gigs in, in Chicago. Yep. Um, after college or even while you were in college. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about that uh, that, that period there, Michael. What? Uh, well, there in, were two things that I knew. One was that my First of all, my parents didn't understand what I was doing because yeah. there was no. I mean, you t- you're talking about the uh, you're talking about the early '60s. Mm-hmm. There really wasn't uh, a understanding of what the recording business was. Right. So what I knew what I wanted to do wouldn't have anything to do with Chicago, though I did play in clubs there. But I but I did have a sense that if I was going to be serious about this, it can't be there. Mm-hmm. And uh, because all that was going on in Chicago at the time was jing- it was a jingle business. They were recording, you know, advertisements yeah, and stuff. Right, and exactly. I knew that I definitely didn't want to do that. I played down on Rush Street on Well Street at, in some clubs. And uh, I was going to school. And I just, you know, when I was 19 years old, I said, you know what? This is not the place that I'm going to have to be to, to do this. I'm going to have to go out to Los Angeles because I was sure. buying records. And I'm looking on the back and I'm going, it says recorded in Los Angeles. <laughs> and it had a list of players mm-hmm. that were playing on the record or the band uh, was recorded at a, a famous studio in Los Angeles or in New York. And, uh, and you realize, well, that's where everything is. So it became pretty uh, evident to me that if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to take a chance here and just kind of get on a plane and mm-hmm. go out to L.A. and just try something. And like I said, my parents didn't have a clue. They were pretty shattered by me getting up and leaving like that. Wow. But, but, you know, later on, they, they totally understood. Right. So you did get on the plane. You, you, you did. There was you, nothing. To, there was nothing to do in Chicago. No. Yeah. Well, so um, you know, you know, when you landed there, did uh, it didn't take you too much time to really to start getting well, around? I mean, because it like an it was I mean you know, the bottom line is, I, I I went there really knowing maybe one person, mm-hmm. and and uh, I you know look I, what I do is I, I, at a church that I was going to that I, I would do arrangements for them. I try to scrape some money together. Of course, back in those days, I mean, if someone said, "Would you come play?" You didn't dare ask them for how much. <laughs> you just wouldn't. That wouldn't even be in the discussion because yeah. there was an understanding that that unfortunately doesn't exist today, and that is is that there is something that you have to sacrifice to get this. Yeah. And so, to me, money was never an issue. I would I would basically eat frozen Salisbury steaks and frozen rice and peanut butter <laughs> and toast. That was my diet for a couple of years. Because that's all I did was I scraped enough money to have an apartment right. and uh, and have some kind of a set of wheels. And all I did was run around and do anything anybody asked me to do. <laughs> yeah. What was the, the first real break right. where you saw the well, real was, night? Uh, you know? when, I, when I went out to L.A., I ended up, uh, there's a guy named Jerry McLean, mm-hmm. who's, a, who's been a dear friend of mine. He, he's a UCLA graduate, and he, he had a, a, a group, a, kind of a Las Vegas singing group. 
And uh, they were friends of ours, and they would back up some people in, in Vegas. And what happens is they got a deal on Columbia to do a three-song singles thing with Bob Alcivar, who at the time was the arranger for uh, The Fifth Dimension. Okay. And uh, Jerry went to Bob and said, look, I want Mike to play, Michael to play piano. And Bob said, what are you talking about? He said, I don't know who this guy is. And Jerry... Believe it or not, said, "Look, if you don't have him play on it, we don't have a deal." Which I didn't. I found out later. I couldn't believe he did that. <laughs> I mean, he he really did. And 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 so this this was probably two two and a half years after I got to L.A. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he said, "I want him to play on this." And so the guy gave in, and I ended up throwing up most of the night before because I knew who I was playing with. I was playing with some of the top <laughs> session players. Oh boy. And uh, I remember getting to the studio and, and I don't know if you've ever had that kind of an experience where you're so nervous that you're oh, yeah. you're losing your eyesight almost, <laughs> that your head it feels like it's going to explode. Yeah. And I sat down and uh, we started running the tune and, and I swore it was terrible, but, but right after the first playback, the guy, bass player, the drummer said, all right, man. And they got my phone number Right. After the session, I was booked solid the next week. Holy God. The very next week. Wow. And I mean, it was a blessing. I got to tell you, I, was, I thought I played terribly because I couldn't really hear what I was playing. I was so nervous. So it just took really, in essence, just one good puke to open up the door. <laughs> That's about it. One good old uh, upchuck. And it was, but, but, you know, it's that kind of thing where you go, okay, that was the door that was there. And, and I wasn't, you know, it was, it was even like I wasn't even convinced. I didn't walk in all cocky and, and like I got this thing. And with attitude and stuff, it had nothing to do with that. It had to do with, you know, look, I am basically feel like I'm over my head. Yeah. And I'll admit it. And I think by being humble and, and just walking in and, and being complimentary of others, that's another thing I think people could learn a little bit of, is don't walk into a room and think you own it. Right. That's completely wrong. I mean, it's the humility of the situation and being humbled by what you're sure. about to do will make you last a whole lot longer than to walk into a room with a ton of attitude. Right. You know, it's just... Basic stuff that people just don't seem to get. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's it isn't about you know, hey, I'm over. I'm really confident. I don't. Ha- I, I know what I'm doing. I got it all together, bruh. It's not <laughs> that at all, you know. And so, it was just an opportunity that was there. And I got to tell you, all of a sudden, I was just cast into this thing where I was getting calls. And in 1973, hmm. I got uh, keyboard player of the year with the Grammys, yeah. which was kind of a, a cool. neat thing to get, you know, and uh, was unexpected, and uh, it just went from there, you know. That's cool. I guess early on in your time in L.A., you and uh, you and Steve Barry assembled L.A. Studio oh, yeah. Group, and uh, I guess I guess one of your claims to fame was uh, the pair of TV theme hits, the theme yep. from SWAT and, and Beretta's yeah. theme. You know, I, another guy that I, that I can't, cannot say enough about is Steve, and Steve really believed in me long before anybody else did, and Steve heard the record that I was telling you about with that other group, uh-huh. and uh, I was introduced to him, and we sat down and talked, and he put me right on staff, basically, without any credentials at ABC. I just couldn't wow. believe it. Suddenly, <laughs> I was given a salary. Suddenly, I had an office, and Steve had me with him for the first, you know, 10 years of his deal, okay. and uh, we would, uh, he, I would do arrangements for him. I'd co-produce with him, and and he just took me under his wing, and there's not enough that can be said about Steve. I mean, Steve's a great guy, and, and I love him, and, and, and everybody needs someone like this to really help them along. Yeah. You know, it's uh, the, that I, I remember, you know, when the you know those shows came out and, you know, they don't. Isn't it a sad thing that these days they, they don't write themes to shows anymore, really? No, <laughs> they, they don't. I mean, every, everything that I grew up with, it had something with some meaning to it. Yep. Something was written for it. There was substance in the music. So it was commercial for a television. Uh, who cares? Yep. You know, but still, these days, it's just like, OK, what's the hot song? Let's get by the rights. And that's the, right. the song will will bring ratings to this whole thing. It's right. a whole even television's done differently. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Everything's done differently. Absolutely. Yeah. Everything's, it's almost like, you know, it's it's kind of like the early days of recording. And I was part, I mean, I was part of the early days of pop recording. I got to tell you, I mean, you know, you, you've got the, the 50s with Elvis Presley and the doo-wop groups, and you got the 60s with the Beatles and the Stones. You got the 70s with the Earth, Wind, and Fires and all that kind of stuff, 80s. We're talking about five or six decades, 60, 50, 60 years of recording. And now we've gotten to the point where the principles and the things that, that really drove the industry are it's like it's like it's old passe stuff and yet to me those rules still apply if someone will just apply them right you know exactly 
You know, uh, I still play uh, my my vinyl albums. In fact, my yeah. my my daughters love. They listen to more. This is sort of unusual. My girls listen to more vinyl than they do CDs. That's cool because they really like you know uh, cleaning the records and whatever. But you know, we you know the other night I, I pulled out the Christopher Cross uh, vinyl album. <laughs> In which I know you're giggling, I know that, but I, I pulled it out because uh, my my girls listen to the song and, and a lot of the songs sailing and ride like the wind, and I'm like, you know, my they they have no idea really what was involved in the project, right. but I told them, hey, look, you know, I'm gonna be talking to a guy that that actually helped produce this record, and 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 they listen to it and they're listening to it over over and over, and I think there's a real education in listening to vinyl for some reason. I don't know, that's my religion or whatever. Well, you know, it's it's it is it does sound better. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, the, 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 the way that you went about mastering and trying to make sure that the bass, the bigness of the bass didn't upset the mm-hmm. stylus and knock it off the record, I, I think vinyl has a certain sound to it. I think old analog tape has a certain sound to it that's very pleasing. Mm-hmm. I think we're far enough along in the digital domain that that's kind of old. People's ears have readjusted, but boy, when you go back and listen to all those things, you go, Wow, you forget about what's going on. The little ticks and pops, all the stuff that's part of it, it's, it's kind of interesting. Well, I think as, as an engineer, I think what it to me is pleasing about some of the old albums, you know, the way things – the way they sounded, especially if they recorded analog, was the whole mastering process. Absolutely. And right now, people are just squeezing the life out of their music. Right. And, well, uh, we compress – everything's so compressed. Oh, you know, just make it louder, you know, and I don't get that. <laughs> well, it's funny because what we have – what Terry and I usually run into is people come and say, hey, what can I do to fix this? And Terry just put, takes all the compression off of stuff and they go, yeah. wow, what just happened? Yeah, it opens mm-hmm. up. I'm serious. It's yeah. that simple. We, In fact, I'm working with a group right now who wanted – I'm going to do part of their album, but they, they just don't like the way five of their songs came out. Yeah. And Terry said, sit down. He said, see all this crap that's on everything? All this processing? <laughs> right, right. He took everything off, and he just played it, and they went, oh, yeah. wow. It just opens right up. becomes dynamic. Yeah. I mean, how- it's just it's unbelievable. I mean, yeah. it's, you're exactly right. The proce- over-processing. You know why? Because it's all there. Mm-hmm. It's it's all there. All your plugins, everything's mm-hmm. there to play around with, and you deceive yourself into thinking you've got something big when it's actually you've made it small. If you go back and if you buy uh, the Toto 4, for example— They've released a whole series of the Toto albums in Japan that were that yeah. were remastered, and it yeah. was done by Sony, and it was done without really the groups knowing, you know, because right. obviously Sony owns their collection, but right. their old stuff. But if you listen to the two, this new mastered version is not; it's right in your face and everything, but it's really accentuated, like the low. It's it's a different record. Right. It just sounds totally different to me. Right. And uh, I don't know; it drove me crazy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. When you tamper, I mean, you see. You know, I got a, a a remastered band, the band collection, and I don't even listen to it. I don't like the way it sounds. Mm, interesting. It doesn't sound like the original stuff. Right. So. You know, on your Christopher Cross album, you worked with Michael McDonald, Don Henley, and Nicolette Larson, mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was such a, a an incredible blend of 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 talent. It's funny how Michael McDonald always comes in, sneaks into all these uh, <laughs> Grammy Award winning records. I don't know how he does it, but he always comes. Yeah. He does. And or Taylor Hicks, man. <laughs> <laughs> Attempting, uh, you know, that the, the, the Doobie Brothers tune, man. Was, right. Yeah. There's only one person that can do that. Don't There's try right. it. <laughs> There's no Don't doubt. Don't try this, please. <laughs> Don't try this at home. That must have been a really gratifying record to work on with Christopher Cross. It was tough. We we uh, Chris Chris is uh, is used to be a pretty obsessive guy mm. and uh, uh, kind of an anal guy, and uh, it, it, we had a lot of fun. We actually did have a, a tremendous amount of fun, but there were times when, just like even the solo on sailing, you know, I, I yeah. that was nothing but just chords. And I said, "Chris, I've got an idea." And I walked in and I played that part in one take. I just had it in my head, and and he and the band went, "Yeah," and he went, "Wait a minute." He says, "That that wasn't the what I heard." And I said, "Well, what did you hear?" He says, "I don't know." And it took three and a half hours of convincing before he said, "Okay, we'll keep it on there." So those are the kind of things, there would be those kind of things that would happen. But, you know, ultimately, I think we came out with a really good good album. And uh, But you know what? It's, 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 it's what's good about an artist who's got an idea of what they're about. And that's what I welcome. I don't mind uh, making compelling arguments for why I do something or someone else should do something, because I enjoy an artist who's got a real strong sense of what they are. The ones that come in and go, I don't have a clue, that's the stuff that worries me. You know, and subsequently that that solo that you're talking about ended up being one of the most well, most it's a noticeable it's a, it's a, it's solos a, it's that a hook you... within the song. Yeah, oh, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, absolutely, it's incredible. Yeah. 
You know, you, you've produced uh, several other hit records, such as Michael Bolton's How Am I Supposed to Live Without You and Amy Grant's Heart in Motion, yeah. Donna Summers, She Works Hard for the Money, yeah. and even Rod Stewart's Infatuation. Yeah. When, you're, when you're producing songs that have, you know, the potential to become huge hits, you know, what are the ingredients that you strive for? You know, the sound, the hook, you know, what are some of the, that Michael Lamartian is, is aiming for? Wow. I don't know. I tell you, every single time, like in the Rod Stewart thing, uh, I would put we put horns on infatuation. Everybody said nobody's doing horn records, hmm. and and that just was enough for me to go. Well, we're going to do one. <laughs> That's a good time to do <laughs> it. With Christopher Cross, nobody's doing this kind of music. It's it's Blondie, it's it's uh, Cars, yeah. it's punk music, and I go okay. Well, that's a challenge. It's slow. <laughs> and, and so for me, whatever the ingredients are, is is basically I'm trying to do something that isn't being done at the moment because I you try to anticipate people getting a little tired of something and hopefully that you bring out something that isn't going to be more of the same. And so I've been fortunate from that standpoint. But, you know, whatever the ingredients are, it's it's got to change from album to album, I think. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I don't know what that is. I, I don't know what that is. I don't want me on the record. I want the artist on the record. Sure. But, you know, you can't help it if you're part of the creative process. <laughs> yeah, party right. gets on there. Mm-hmm. But I don't want people to go, oh, that's his record because I can always tell whenever I listen to a record by this guy that I, I know it's his record it's mm-hmm. his production and so to me it's it's not always sounding the same it's always mixing it up a little bit yeah you know but David Foster sort of you know you can almost pinpoint a David Foster album though you know yeah, he's been pretty successful you have to yeah that. well sure he has been yeah. but you know he certainly definitely had a at least in back in the 80s you could really you could he really still listen. does I mean there's a certain thing with, with Umberto and his mixes and stuff mm-hmm. there's a certain gloss and sheen to a record like with with Celine Dion and and, mm-hmm. and yeah. Josh Groban, but uh, th- there's a certain shine and sheen to these records that I can always tell it's Foster. Mm-hmm. He's got his hands on it. So, mm-hmm. but you know that's his identifying mark. I mean, the guy's really super talented. Yeah, you worked on countless uh, CCM projects. Yeah, a- Amy Grant uh, over the years, Michael W. Smith, Crystal Lewis, Wayne Watson, and. Did that portfolio and clientele, um, you know, your clients happen to grow because you moved back to Nashville, or were you involved with them in L.A. too? Nothing really. I think the country clientele kind of grew hmm. when I got here. Uh, the the CCM thing, uh, these people would travel out to L.A. as easily as I would come here yeah. to Nashville. It was it was really, you know, uh, it didn't really make that much difference with that. I think with the Reba McIntyre and Vince Gill and some of the, and, and I've been I played on Shania Twain's records and. Yeah. And uh, a lot, a lot of other people. I've, I've been working a lot with Allison Krauss recently and doing strings and, mm-hmm. and overdubs and stuff on her records and, mm-hmm. and on Alan Jackson. So those kind of things pick up by just because you're here, because these people tend to want to 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 use local talent. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that that picked up from the countryside. But uh, as far as the CCM thing, that's always been. It sounds like we're. we're back to Nashville now, and I was going to ask you, when did you move to Nashville, yeah, and what brought you there? Yeah, 1993. Hmm. You, you say what, what brought me here? Yeah, what brought you out to Nashville? It's kind of what I was saying a little earlier about the fact that I was sitting at a computer, and, and I right. was just not feeling real excited about what was going on. You know, the traffic was getting worse. The relationships, Warner Brothers, the whole thing dissolved into DreamWorks, and everybody kind of went different ways, and, and it was just, it was kind of like... That family atmosphere was just leaving because everybody was off kind of in their own cubicles mm-hmm. doing their own thing. And I just said, you know what, I need a change of pace. And my kids were getting to the age where it might be healthy to get them out of there and, and to a little simpler uh, lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it really has agreed with them tremendously. So there was a lot of factors. My wife also is a speaker, and she's an author, a very successful author. Mm-hmm. And what was happening is that whenever she needed to speak, leaving from the West Coast would always be a big deal. But from leaving from Nashville... It was always a one day, whereas with L.A. it was two to three days to get back. So mm-hmm. it made life easier for her with her speaking engagements and TV and stuff like that that she had to do going across this country because, you know, 70% of the country is within within an hour and a half to two hours on an airplane from yeah. here. Right, right. So there were a lot of factors. And, and you know, and, and i, I got to tell you, a lot of my musician buddies moved here. Mm-hmm. The guys that I would call to play all moved here because for the same reason why I moved here, because they wanted to do more live playing. Right. Interesting. You know, and on, on the note of, um, you know, work, collaborating with your wife, um, bringing it a little closer to home, Stormy, uh, you, you've collaborated on a few projects, even yeah. with her on a musical basis. I have a couple albums. I mean, As a lyricist. 
Yeah, she's a, she's a great lyricist. Yeah, she writes beautiful stuff. And uh, yeah, she's I mean, good. I have two albums. I remember the Seasons of the Soul and the oh, Builder. Yeah. I've got those from years back. Yeah, then. yeah, yeah, yeah. And Absolutely. I just want to. I still commend you because that's still beautiful stuff to listen to. Well, thank it's you. Really nice. Thank you. But you've recently. I want to go continue on the personal thing. Is you've recently launched your new label, Trapstar. Yeah. And uh, and you're and you've discovered, of course, uh, a few young young talents. But one that uh, your uh, assistant sort of directed us to was a young man named uh, Adam Cunningham. Yeah. Adam. Adam Cunningham. Yeah, yeah went to his side. Nice stuff. Very. Cool, uh, yeah, very nice. Uh, explain a little bit about your uh, your new label. My nephew-in-law, uh, DJ McKee, who lives in Winston Salem, and his father uh, called me about three years ago, and DJ said, "Hey." Are you interested in doing something uh, along the lines of a label? And I went, oh, here we go. You know, it's, you know, because you know, there's so many. It, it, the, it's not that I want to do it. It's just what you have to tell people to expect. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people come in going, "Do you want to do a label?" And they they got the finances and stuff. And you go, "Do you understand what you're asking <laughs> to do here? Because you're not making a pair of shoes that goes off of a shelf. You you can probably go three years before you see a penny, or maybe four. And so I had to go through this whole thing, and they said, yeah, we're cool with that. I said, you're, you're serious? And they said, yeah. I said, well, okay. I'd consider this. And DJ uh, had a guy named Adam Cunningham who lived in Winston-Salem, and he told me, he said, you need to hear this guy because he's really good. And I said, okay. So Adam came out to Nashville and, with his guitar and played a few songs. I said, man, this guy's good. I mean, just he opens his mouth and he commands a, uh, his, the presence is there. It's just mm-hmm. amazing. And so uh, we launched a uh, label called Trackstar Record Works, and it's uh, it's we have a nice we have two employees, uh, we have a promotion guy, basically promotion and and a marketing guy, yeah. and uh, we uh, have no offices. We work on our cell phones and out of internet and computers. Mm-hmm. We're not interested in overhead. We want to put everything into our artists. Yeah. We have two artists right now. We have about three or four pass-through artists, which, and what I mean by that is that they're looking for distribution, but they have stuff that's already existing with distribution companies. And we have a, a very worldwide, large distribution network. They like volume. They don't want you to just come in with one record a year. So mm-hmm. we have to deliver six to eight records a year. Well, to, to deliver six to eight records from your label can cost millions, and mm-hmm. we don't have that at the beginning. So what we've done is we've passed through albums that already exist to... Mm-hmm. to to work on their volume. So it's working out real nice. Adam actually is number one with his first song is number one in about uh, six weeks in uh, all of the Southeast and Mm -hmm. it's making its way out West. And and so our first guy out of the box is doing well. And uh, the second group is a group called Prelude, which is includes my daughter and two girls that she sang with since she came to Nashville when she was 12 years old. Hmm. Uh, And uh, it's really a good group. It's uh, contemporary. It's, it's, it's real hip. We're, in fact, the first single that's coming out next week is a remake of the Beatles' We Can Work It Out. Really? And uh, they're going out on the road and uh, doing some things with my wife and, and also going to be doing a whole bunch of conferences and stuff in the in the uh, fall. So, you know, it's 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 expensive to do this. It's fun. We're, I don't know if you've heard of a guy named Nathan Angelo. I don't, this guy's incredible. Yeah. So, you know, we're looking to uh, to build our inventory over the next four or five years slowly i don't think we can handle anything more than four or five artists at this point right. that we are involved with sure. but you know we're I'm, I'm having more fun than i ever have because i'm just so tired of delivering produced records to a company that's about to go defunct or losing their a <laughs> and department or the president decides to leave i mean it just happens so much and i think really we're in an age where it's it's you got to own everything yeah. you just have to you have to own it yourself and figure out a way to do it yourself with the internet being so vital to uh, music distribution now and everything like that, most large record companies really balk at giving stuff away. Right. They don't understand the concept because they've got three or 4,000 employees. And so the idea of being able to give things away freely to get something is just, just goes over their head because mm-hmm. it's too expensive for them. Right. So uh, I'm having more fun. In fact, when I get a call to produce an artist on another label, I, my first instinct is I don't want to do it. <laughs> I really don't. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's fun but we're not in the age where it used to work really well right it doesn't work like it did the clive davises are less and less uh in the world i mean real record people right mm-hmm. lawyers have taken over everything and it really is bottom line music and and it really has less to do with passion than just the end result and, and you know titillation and and uh you know whatever w- it makes you attracted to something whether it's sexual or 
or garbage or kind of language that just is absolutely unbecoming. That's actually intolerable, right. except for in a song. It's amazing how people would go, you can't talk like that. But in a song or if you're a comedian, you can. So, I mean, it's just kind of weird. Artistic uh, licenses. This kind of weird craziness that we're in. And I just think, you know what, I don't want to... I want to do something different. Yeah, I agree. Either that, I just like to retire. I, I, I'm honestly, if it wasn't for this label, I think I'd go. You know what? I'm having too much fun hanging out. I'm, I'm just <laughs> just not inspired like I used to. This this got my inspiration going again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. Well, hey, tell us about 2007 and what you what the outlook is for 2007 for you. Well, 2007, our girls, the the Prelude group comes out in uh, in May. Mm-hmm. I'm doing some overdubs and I'm doing some orchestral stuff like I said for Allison Krauss there's uh, I've been it's funny uh, in the last week I've been sent a couple of packages for some uh, potential country artists that are looking for producers so mm-hmm. and it's just it's kind of like outside of the record company that I'm that I spend time on with with meetings and and getting stuff together uh, I just I'm a normal producer. People call me, and I decide whether I want to do something or not. And right now, my short term is to do some of these overdub things. I'm working on remixing an album and and working on a, a, a group called the Annie Moses Band, who are four uh, Juilliard uh, trained musicians that come from the same family with a rhythm section, and it's hmm. bizarre. Wow! I and mean, it's the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. <laughs> cause they're so good. What, what are they called? Annie Moses Band. Annie Moses. And it's for it's the it's just bizarre because they're so good and she sings great. Her name is Annie Wolliver, and and it's interesting because it's kind of like it's kind of a weird thing because it's kind of like almost like an Osmond family, but they're much hipper and yet, yeah. but it's still the fi- family dynamic. The mom and dad come by and and they sit down at the cello and the viola and the two violins, and you sit there and you go, "This is ridiculous." They're so good. <laughs> I mean, they sound like Itzhak Perlman, man. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Wow. And and they've woven it in. It's kind of like a modern-day electric light orchestra. That's all I can say. <laughs> it's just really cool. Wow, so that's funny. We're, we're uh, remixing. That, that's the group I was alluding to where they had all the processing on everything, and, uh-huh. and we started taking stuff off, and they went, wow, that sounds great. And we go, well, that's because there's no processing on it. Right. <laughs> exactly. Are there projects of, of this band out there right now? Because Annie Moses Band? Annie Moses Band, I think they have a, they have a website. They're, yeah. they're, the thing that they do in, in live is just, it's stunning. I went to Birmingham, Alabama here last month to just see their live show. It was, and they got a, they got a standing ovation after every song. Holy cow. After every song. These guys are amazing. I mean, they rock out and yet, and, and they do this thing, they, it's just the. It's just weird. I mean, it, it's like nothing I've ever heard before. It's just, fresh. It's totally unique. Wow! Isn't that good to see? Yeah, I just need to harness it and get it. Kind of. There's so much talent there. You've got to go. Okay, the public can't take too many things on a record. <laughs> so we're trying to find the the thing that will bring people to to know that this is you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Hey, Michael. I want to thank you for your time and uh, hey, thanks my, for my being pleasure. with us on this Inside Music Cast and. Uh, we uh, we'd really like to touch base with you later on and find out what's, how things are progressing in the year. You can contact me anytime, guys. Sounds right. good. Thanks, thanks a lot. God bless you both, man. Thank thanks you very much. much. I enjoyed it. Special thanks to Michael Omardian for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week, so be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com.